Greetings and welcome back to another episode of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast presented by Run In. This is mile 3.1. We have made it to the 5K mark. Travis and Ben back with you again. Ben, how you doing, buddy? I'm great. How are you? Wonderful. Good to have you as always. Let's go ahead and jump right in and start with our wrap-up of the Prefontaine Classic. Ben, give me your impressions first of Friday Night at Pre. The headliners at Friday Night were the 800 and 2-mile events. In the 800, we saw the crowning of King Career. Emmanuel Career, he ran for UTEP down in Texas. He went pro after his freshman year, setting the NCAA record in the event. With 200 meters to go on Friday, he took a tumble, almost face-planting on the track. He had to fight to stay on his feet, took six steps on the inside rail, but didn't receive an advantage because of that, so they did not disqualify him. But he had an unreal burst of speed down the home straightaway, storming by guys to take the win. Yeah, great recovery from career. I'm a huge fan, even more so after that effort. That is the kind of fall that a lot of runners might just shut it down and step out of the race. And he chose to get right back in and made a great move down the stretch to beat a guy who has run 141 high in the past. So pretty impressive. Yeah, nipping him right at the line. And then in the two-mile, we thought there would be potential for an American record of 8.07 and a world record, but ultimately no one went with the Pacers, and recent 349-mile man, King Chez, had a lackluster race. He was way off the back, running times he would have ran in high school for the distance. Yeah, so Edward Cheserick's people said that he's been dealing with some injuries lately. It was a really disappointing return to Eugene for him as he lagged to the back and never really made a move and the race as a whole was a bit of a disappointment we had built up some anticipation even here on our last episode but in the media all over and overall it was a really average effort also shout out to colorado's redshirt junior danny jones on winning the women's national 1500 if she was not redshirting she would be the fastest 1500 meter runner in the ncaa this year and she stepped right back and paced the women's 1500 the next day. And did a great job. Double duty from Danny, absolutely. So let's hit Saturday then. The big event from Saturday, the Bowerman Mile, the focal point of the day, the last event on the track at Hayward Field. Timothy Chariot in 349 takes the win. But the big story, Jacob Ingrebetsen, the Norwegian teenager who we've been talking a lot about lately, finishes in 352.28 for fourth place. This performance puts him a second faster than what Alan Webb ran as an American high schooler in 2001. And Jacob did it at a year younger, looked really good coming around the last lap, closed hard, made a push for third place. Ben, what were some other storylines from the Bowerman Mile? So couple seconds back were the Nike Oregon Project teammates Clayton Murphy and Matthew Centrowitz, who have both been struggling getting their outdoor season started this year after being hampered with injuries in the fall. Both runners went 353 and seem to be rounding back into that shape that we know them to be in. Yeah, Murphy looked strong. He looked much like the runner we remember from two seasons ago who closed well. A guy who really the plan for a long time was to become a 1,500 meter or miler runner, but he had such success early on after his stint at University of Akron in the 800 that he stuck there for an Olympic medal. 
but great progress from him. Uh, his coach, Alberto Salazar, he said that he really had shown great strength, has been in a good base phase, and it started to show there. And then Samuel Tefera, the Ethiopian teenager, made it two teenagers in the top four of the Bowerman Mile. Earlier in the day, in the 200, it was Noah Lyles of the United States winning in 19.69, a personal best, and he has now tied the 2018 world lead. Ben, Noah Lyles, what does his future hold? Well, I can't say it any better than what Lewis Johnson said after the race when he was interviewing uh, Little Lyles. How does it feel to have just ended the U.S. drought in the 200 meter? And to put that in perspective, at the 2017 World Championships, an event, the 200 meter that Americans are known to dominate, we did not have a single medalist. So Noah Lyles, his performance, very exciting. All right, in a prediction sure to go wrong, let me state it here first on the Seconds Flat Running podcast. Noah Lyles will medal at the 2020 Olympics, and he is my prohibitive favorite at 200. This guy is bringing home gold. I am certain that two years from now, someone is going to replay that back in my face if this goes wrong. But book it, Noah Lyles, 2020 medalist. Noah, if you're out there listening... We here at Run-In have a Seconds Flat running podcast singlet for you. And Noah, I hope you're the same size as Eric Avila because I think we only have one and we already promised that to Eric and he would have looked fantastic in that top in the International Mile on Saturday at Pre. It might have helped him. It couldn't have hurt. Now in action from the women's 1500, it was Shelby Houlihan with a personal best by over four seconds to become only the seventh American woman ever under four minutes for 1,500 meters. She grabbed her first Diamond League victory, closing in 28.9 seconds for the last 200. Shelby, I think you just crushed my 200-meter PR. She is continuing an incredible season of success and did it by blasting past Jenny Simpson in the final lap. Simpson, who ran a race a little atypical of her style, going to the front earlier than normal and leading through most of the last lap before Shelby came off that last turn flying for home to take the victory. What's interesting about the way she ran it is taking the lead the last lap is exactly what Danny Jones from Colorado did the night before, and they're coached by Heather Burroughs. So it's interesting to see them both going with the same race tactic. Cool parallels. Also in the field, it was a great day for field action. We had Prefontaine Classic meet records from Ryan Krauser in the men's shot put and Jen Schur in the women's pole vault. The semi-retired Jen Schur, who at 36 still keeps winning big events. My guy, Christian Taylor, in the triple jump on the last jump of the day. Fantastic Always a charismatic interview afterwards as well. A great face for American track and field. And the youngster, Mondo Duplantis, just graduated high school in Louisiana, finished second in the pole vault behind Sam Kendricks, but Mondo has an incredible future. So that leads me to this thought, Ben. Which of the young stars from the Prefontaine Classic has the brightest future? Because for certain... The future of track and field is in good hands, but who will be the best? I'm going with Mondo Duplantis. The only person he hasn't beaten at an elite level is Sam Kendricks, the reigning world champion. He beat the Olympic champion at Pre. He beat the world record holder at Pre. 
this kid, he's unstoppable. Well, except when it comes to Big Sammy K. But I think Mondo has a tremendous number of years ahead of him. It's really fun to watch in a great event, the pole vault. I'm going to go off the board here, though. A guy that we did not even mention in our wrap-up because he finished second in his event, and that is Christian Coleman from Tennessee, the sprinter. We saw what he did indoors in the 60 meters with a world record. I think he has the best long-term potential for a couple reasons. One, he's going to set the times. He is a future Olympic medalist. I am making some bold predictions tonight that I will stand by. Well, he's a current world championship medalist, so it's not too far-fetched to say So really, I did not make a prediction that is in any way bold at all. Now, with that said, (laughs) (laughs) the reason that I like Coleman more than some of the other guys here for their future, like Lyles or or Mondo Duplantis or Jacob Ingerbritsen, is the event he runs. He's in a glamour event in the 100 meter. It it is what everyone tunes in for the world championships and the Olympics to watch. We all know Usain Bolt around the world. And I think Christian Coleman is the next American who can push those numbers. He can be what Justin Gatlin has been and perhaps more. So I'm taking Christian Coleman for the future of American track and field. Eugene will host the NCAA championships coming up here in a couple weeks, but this year's Prefontaine Classic was the last professional meet at historic Hayward Field before it undergoes some dramatic changes. Eugene will host the 2021 IAAF World Championships. This is the first time the World Championships will be on American soil, and to prepare for that, they need to bring the stadium up to international specifications. Unfortunately, with that, we lose an incredible amount of history and stories from the past at Hayward Field. Hayward has been called the Carnegie Hall of track and field. In many ways, it's Boston's Fenway Park meets Green Bay's Lambeau Field meets Duke's Cameron Indoor Stadium. The host of six U.S. Olympic trials and 13 NCAA championships. I remember my first trip to Hayward Field on spring break with my dad. We made our pilgrimage to worship at the icons of Tracktown USA. And I returned actually in 2017 to run the Eugene Marathon in one of the coolest experiences of my running career. Got to run that final stretch of about 200 meters through the finish line on the track to say I ran where the greats had run. In honor of the history of Hayward Field and to recognize the moments in its past that are unparalleled anywhere else in the world of track and field, we've compiled our list of the six greatest moments just like the number of U.S. Olympic trials they've hosted there, in the history of Hayward Field. We'll kick it off at number six with the 2007 Prefontaine Classic 800 meters. On that day, a young man from Boise, Idaho, arrived on the global stage. But it was 2004 Olympic gold medalist Yuri Borzakovsky and two-time defending U.S. champion Kadivas Robinson that the crowd were expecting great things from. Early in the race, Borzakovsky went to the back of the pack, a move that he was noted for, and NBC announcers immediately pointed it out as his traditional strategy to hang back and move from behind. But on this day, another man, 
one who was relatively unknown, seized that role and would patent the come-from-behind move for the next decade. He was finally mentioned at the 55-second mark as an up-and-comer. Nick Simmons, sitting then and next to last. Simmons was only a year removed from college, where he had won seven Division III national titles at Willamette University in Salem, Oregon. Moreover, he had smashed the Division III 800-meter national record, and now was training in Eugene with the Oregon Track Club. As the runners moved into the last turn at 600 meters, Robinson moved and took the lead. And Borzakovsky was right there to get on his shoulder after a breathtaking surge on the backstretch. He moved past a half dozen competitors, and it looked like we had a two-man race with only 80 meters left. Then, seemingly from nowhere, Simmons swung wide into lane three off the final curve and outkicked both stars. As fans roared their approval, the announcers noted Simmons as that new guy on the block and the hometown hero. And in his post-race interview, Simmons said, I could feel it building and building and building. I felt the crowd. I dropped to that last gear. I've never found that gear before. And this race served as the precursor of his illustrious career. He won six U.S. national titles in the event from 2008 to 2015, two Olympic appearances, and he had international high points of finishing fifth in the 2012 London Olympics and a silver at the 2013 World Championships. Yeah, that 2012 800 at London might be the greatest 800 ever. And at the front of the pack, David Rudisha, the gold medal winner and world record holder, who unfortunately for Simmons there... The high points of their career overlapped, and, and so Simmons maybe never received some of the international acclaim he may have in another generation. But the day he broke through at the pre-classic is our number six moment in Hayward Field history. At number five, we have the Hayward Restoration Meet of June 1974. And the highlight of that meet, the Three Mile. That day, Steve Prefontaine stepped onto the track holding the American record at every distance between 2K and 10K. And he invited Frank Shorter, 1972 Olympic marathon gold medalist, in hopes of chasing a fast three-mile time. The two agreed to exchange the lead through the two-and-a-half-mile mark given the windy conditions in Eugene that day. And after a 4.16 first mile, Pre and Shorter broke away from the pack. But later, the gentleman's agreement fell apart in mile three as Shorter tucked in for three laps using Pre to his advantage. Then, with 300 left, Shorter hit the gas, taking a 15-meter advantage to the surprise of everyone in the crowd. The shocked Hayward fans groaned in unison, urging Pre back into the race. Third place finisher Don Cardong, who went on to finish fourth at the 76 Olympic Marathon, was shocked by the crowd's sheer volume, later saying it was beyond exciting. It was terrifying. Spurred on by what he often referred to as his people, Pre closed the gap, reaching shorter with 40 yards remaining, then stormed to a victory. Both men broke the previous American record that day as Pre ran 1251.4 and Shorter posted a 1252, a time he never bested. 
What I love about this race is if you go back two years earlier at the 72 Olympic Games, Pre took the lead in the 5,000 with a mile to go, getting passed in the final lap by three men, finishing just a spot outside of the medals, devastating him. Pre made sure in his training that this would never happen again. So again, in this situation, in this race, he takes the lead with a mile to go. Shorter doesn't hold up his end of the bargain. Pre doesn't back down from the pace. He keeps fighting, and when he gets past, he's able to find that gear he didn't have in 72. And it really makes you wonder what would have happened in 76 if he was able to be at those games. Yeah, great point, Benji. Let's go to number four, 1982. Henry Rono, Alberto Salazar in a 10K duel for the ages. Salazar was fresh off his 208.13 New York City Marathon from the previous fall, a world's best performance, and he was stacked up against the greatest 10K runner of the era, Henry Rono, formerly of Washington State University. Rono once set world records at four different distances over the span of only 81 days. Salazar loved the timing of this race because he set it up to be about two weeks before his attempt at the Boston Marathon. He wanted a world-class field to come to Eugene to push the pace in a 10K, perhaps pushing for a 10K world record, and replicating the 10K marathon double that he planned for the 1984 LA Olympics. The idea here being... The dates, apart from the 10K in Eugene to the marathon in Boston, looked a lot like the schedule for the 84 games. A field of 14 started, but it quickly became a two-man battle, as by the 5K mark, Rono and Salazar had separated from the pack, while rain poured down on them and glistened off Hayward Field. With 500 meters to go, Rono made his move, but Salazar responded, getting on Rono's shoulder by the 200-meter mark and surging into the lead out of the final turn. Unexpected to the crowd because Rono was known to be the dominant man at this distance. Down the stretch, however, Rono took the lead for good with 80 to go and held on by less than a meter for the victory. The final times... Rono, 27 minutes, 27.9 seconds, his second fastest ever. And Salazar, 27.30, his personal best, and only one-tenth of a second behind Rono, less than a second off Craig Virgin's American record. Kenny Moore of Sports Illustrated wrote a feature story about the event the next week, and said it was the greatest 10,000 duel ever fought in this country, and Rono and Salazar were so tired that during their slow victory jog, each was tripping over his short spikes. None other than Bill Bowerman, legendary Oregon coach, called it the greatest race he ever saw. As you mentioned about the timing of this race being preparation for the 1984 Olympic Games for Salazar, Ultimately, he wouldn't be able to see the fruits of his labor. He wasn't quite the runner he was in 82, but he was able to take the experience of training for this double and apply it when he became a coach, ultimately with his athlete Galen Rupp, who at the 2016 Olympics placed fifth in the 10,000, and then one week later came back 
and finished in the bronze medal position in the men's marathon. 82 was really the height of Salazar's career, and this meet is about at the pinnacle. It was shortly after this that he had his famous duel in the sun at Boston with Dick Beardsley, and some have suggested maybe he was never the same runner after that, what it took out from him. And so while he faltered a bit in 84, the Salazar-Rono duel of 1982 is easily one of the great head-to-head distance races in world history. Staying with the Olympic theme, as Salazar was pointing ahead to the 84 games, our third place on the list of greatest moments in Hayward Field history is the 1972 Olympic trials. Rather than a single moment, it's the entirety of those days in Eugene in the summer of 72, in what is often referred to as the greatest track meet in American history. In 72, for the first time, athletes did not have to qualify through earlier meets. Instead, they simply had to meet minimum qualifying standards, which yielded a more competitive trials rather than emphasizing earlier meets. The drama was high in Eugene, both on and off the track, highlighted by legendary Jim Ryan having to be flown into the meet by helicopter due to his allergy to Eugene's grass seed pollen. On the track, there were a huge number of records broken. Eugene's favorite son, Steve Prefontaine, broke the American record in the 5K with a 13.22, in which he actually let off the gas in the last lap. In the 100 meters, both Eddie Hart and Ray Robinson tied the world record at 9.9 seconds flat. But the 800 meters is the focus of our story. It was where Dave Waddle tied the world record in 1 minute 44.3 seconds before his famous baseball cap adorned charge from dead last at the 400 meter mark to win the Olympic gold in Munich. In a really talented field, Jim Ryan surged with 300 to go, hammering an 11.4 second 100 into the curve. But Waddle matched the move, then blew past in the home stretch. To that point, no American 800 meter race had seen more than two men go below a minute 45 and a half seconds. On July 1st, 1972, six men did. This was a really special Olympic trials if for no other reason, just the pure depth in each race. These are common household names that you're saying. Steve Prefontaine, Jim Ryan, Dave Waddle, Frank Shorter. Then you had guys in the races, Jack Batchelor, Don Cardong. Jeff Galloway. Jeff Galloway even, yes. What also stood out to me about the game, specifically in the 10,000 and marathon distances, was that guys who had qualified in earlier events were jumping in these events if they had hit the standard to help their friends qualify. That camaraderie, to me, is what I love about the sport so much. And it does really symbolize what we think of as the the running boom of the 70s. One, in what you said, the depth of runners, just how great these fields were. But two, the way these guys raced, there was a lot of friendship guys who spent a lot of nights on other guys' couches because they weren't making the kind of money that runners do today. They pushed each other while being great friends, and sometimes that added to the level of competition and made it even better. But yes, 50 years later almost, 
we still look at some of these guys as the greatest that America ever produced. Speaking of one of the greatest that America ever produced, number two, the 2001 Prefontaine Classic Mile, May 27th, 2001, Alan Webb, high schooler from Reston, Virginia, breaks Jim Ryan's 36-year-old high school mile record. Webb posted an astonishing 3 minutes, 53.43 seconds that day to make him the greatest American high school miler ever. Moreover, it was the fastest mile by any American in three years. To do it, Webb surged from the back of the pack over the last 300 meters, closing in 55 seconds as a raucous Hayward Field crowd drowned out the stadium announcer. Webb finished fifth in the race, a race where world record holder El Garouge ran the fastest mile ever on American soil, and then the two shared a victory lap. Meet director Tom Jordan called that race the loudest he had ever heard Hayward Field. With this amazing performance, the expectations for Alan Webb rose through the roof. And now that his career is over, a lot of people feel like there was unfulfilled potential, that he was on track to be a world championship and Olympic medalist, but he never got to see that happen during his career due to injuries and other things. But what solidifies him as the American mile goat for me is the fact that in the summer of 2007, he broke Steve Scott's American record in the mile, and he went 346.91. And this was in a small meet. There was no bleachers at the meet. It was just people with picnic chairs out there watching. He had two pacers come, and once they dropped out, he was completely alone. What's really special about that race is how blown away he was when he got the record. He came to a complete stop as soon as the race was over, waiting for the time to flash on the clock. The second it did, he threw his hands in the air and ran the fastest 100 meters of the day. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, the look on his face that day was actually a lot like the expression he had at the pre-classic in 2001 when he yes. realized that he broke Jim Ryan's record. I highly recommend you going to Flow Track and looking up Alan Webb, American Record, watching the race, and seeing the interview. Just seeing someone who'd struggled with so much achieve that and hearing him talk about, I think I can go faster. It's a very uplifting thing to watch. Our number one most iconic moment in Hayward Field history comes from June 3rd, 1975. The memorial service for the man whom this week's Prefontaine Classic was named after. At just after midnight on May 30th, 1975, exactly 43 years ago on the date we released this podcast, Pre lost control of his car as he drove down a narrow, winding stretch of Skyline Boulevard in Eugene. He had just won a 5K at Hayward Field his 25th consecutive victory at a distance over a mile. And his sights were set on a single goal, Olympic gold in Montreal the next year. On June 3rd, 4,000 mourners filled the East Grandstand, and the stadium clock started. It would run until hitting 12 minutes, 36 seconds. 
described as a time with which Steve Prefontaine would be well satisfied. 63 seconds per lap for three miles, a goal he had once shared with friends. During that time, three men spoke, Coach Bill Bowerman and friends and competitors Frank Shorter and Kenny Moore. Moore later wrote that Bowerman was shaky at first, an image of the wrongness of a father burying a son. After the speeches, the clock ticked past 10 minutes. The crowd stood and applauded. Then the cheers developed into a frenzy as if pre-raced toward the tape right in front of them. The clock stopped at 1236.4. Pre's death remains a reminder of the fragility of human existence, the boundless enthusiasm and optimism of youth, and the emptiness of promise unfulfilled. Like so many other icons, both in sports and in political life, he remains forever young, cemented in lore as the face of the 70s running boom. As thousands have done before me, I visited Pree's Rock at the crash site following my marathon in Eugene. I left my race bib there as a tribute. We'll end the countdown with the inscription on Pree's Rock. Pree, for your dedication and loyalty to your principles and beliefs, for your love, warmth, and friendship, for your family and friends. You are missed by so many, and you will never be forgotten. Pree's running career left us with so many memories, and we're also left with great memories from the history of Hayward Field. Hopefully for a few incredible young athletes in the coming weeks, they'll get one last set of memories in Hayward at the NCAA Championships. And we look forward to next week previewing the NCAA Division I Outdoor Track and Field Championships with a special guest who will be competing in that event. Until then, for Benji, this is Travis. Thanks for listening to the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. See you soon.